On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Emre Shamdan about reducing MTTR in serverless environments. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 12. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Emra Shamdan. Hi, Emra. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks a lot for having me today. So you're the VP of product at Thundra. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what Thundra is up to? Yeah, sure. So I'm, you know, I'm, you know, me as a product manager for Tundra. I started as a product manager in Tundra while it was a start project. It was a in, insider project in Genie. We were some some engineers, me and some 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 designers that, that are doing an internal uh, product for Opsini engineers. Then it turned out to be a product and company, and now we are serving serverless developers for observability. So. In 2017, Serkan, our, our CEO and the CTO actually acting, and he, he was developing uh, some modules of Opsini with uh, AWS Lambda. And uh, he had some problems with the observability and he couldn't find any any solution that fits their purposes. And he said, hey, I can write a, like Java libraries because they were writing in Java at that time, uh, which can give me some, some ideas about like how my Lambda functions are performing. And he developed this as a, like an extracurricular activity for Opsini, and he he made this available, and it was sending data to Elastic at that time, and they were seeing some some Tundra produced data, and they thought that even before I joined Opsini, they thought that why don't we make it as a separate product, and why why don't we make it as a, a separate company, and I joined, and they they hired me as a as a product manager for that. And in the, in the October last year, in 2018, we decided to spin off it as a separate company because, you know, Opsini was sold to Atlassian and Tundra will continue as a separate uh, company. And uh, we are helping serverless developers with the observability by aggregating traces, metrics, and logs. Very cool. All right. So I wanted to talk to you today about reducing MTTR in serverless environments, because I think that when we we think about mean time to repair, normally we have a lot of control. Like if we were running our applications on-prem, then we likely have access to the physical servers and the hardware components. Uh, And and even if we're running our applications on something like EC2, uh, we still have access to the operating systems, the VM instance sizes, the attached storage, uh, and, and the same is typically true with containers as well, right? So, so we have a lot of ways in which we can affect the time it takes to repair some of these hardware or even scale issues. Uh, but if you're if you're in a serverless environment, then it's it's quite a bit different, especially if you're using a lot of managed services from the cloud provider. Um, you really don't have access to those underlying operating systems or hardware anymore. Uh, and I know some people have changed the R and MTTR to mean recovery or resolution, uh, since it's really less about actually repairing hardware. Um, but maybe we can start there. Maybe you can give us your thoughts on what's different with how we respond to incidents in serverless versus how we would respond to incidents with maybe more traditional applications. So uh, definitely. So 
in, in traditional applications, as you say, there are some resources that we can easily gather the information when we see some problems, some incidents in our system. But in serverless, it, on the other hand, it is like uh, you have uh, like different pile of logs, which is out of which, which comes out of bugs from CloudWatch, from from uh, the resources that Cloud Vendor uh, propose. But these are actually separate, and these are not actually giving the full picture of what happened in the distributed serverless environment. And what what you need here is that the 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 problems is uh, are different in in normal environment. The problem, like most of the time, was actually about scalability, and you were responding by giving more resources by just increasing the power of your system. But with serverless, the problem is about like some some problem occurs in in any kind of a system in a distributed network, and you need some more than log files. You need like all three pillars of observability, which is called like traces. In our case, it is like distributed traces, which shows the interaction between Lambda functions and the managed APIs and the managed resources and third-party APIs, and the local traces, which shows what happens in the Lambda function and the metrics and the logs. Yeah, right. And and I think you're right that the uh, the distributed nature of serverless is something that that might be relatively new to people as well. So just figuring out where the problem is or uh, you know what component is causing the issue is is a, a challenge in and of itself. Um, so so the point about metrics is interesting too because as you just said the the scalability is handled by the cloud provider for you with most of these services. Uh, so we're we're likely not as worried about you know low level metrics like CPU usage anymore. Um, so so what are the signals of failure? Like how how do we know that something is broken? Um, you know, what are the things that tell us something might be wrong in our application um, and, and things that we might want to address? Yeah, sure. If the scalability is not problem, so what might be the problem? So what what might what what might be the good metrics that we should look at? In this case, like there are some metrics which are actually very predictable by everyone listening here, but uh, they are actually saving our systems availability a lot. So first and the most important is actually latency because of our aim to not to re receive timeout errors, right? So the, the latency metric, the duration of invocations metrics is something that we should keep your keep our eye on. So we need to keep an eye on the how long does our functions take. So we need to see that if the duration is approaching to timeout. If there is, we should we should check that uh, what might be the reason. We should check that is there something is there a problem with the third party APIs? Is there a problem with the resources that we are using? And this gives you like when you see a latency, you should be approaching it very, very carefully because you don't want to be in the sum of timeout errors. So the second metric, in my opinion, is that like memory usage. So, you know, we are uh, provisioning a memory uh, to Lambda function, and this is the only thing that we control in, in, in serverless. Most of the time, developers are giving the memory uh, more than it actually requires, just in order to increase the speed up the IO and throughput and the let's say the CPU, and but in this case we we are we are having problems with the cost, you know, because whenever your function gets triggered, it it runs for a time and uh, our, our billing is decided by gigabyte per second. So in this case, if you uh, allocate more than necessary memory, 
we may be losing some money uh, for Lambda. I mean, this might be very uh, negligible if you don't use Lambda excessively, but if you are using Lambda in production and and you are using Lambda uh, and serverless mostly, you will have you will have some problems with the costs. In order to do that, you should tune your memory accordingly. And I, I love what Alex Casalboni does about this. And you should see how your function is performing best with the with which which memory configuration. Even after that, you should keep track of memory usage and see if there is a jump that you don't expect, and uh, you you can again tune it again. So you should you should tune it again because there there might be some changes in the in the managed resources they are using. There might be some some changes in the inputs that you are processing. So memory usage is something that you should keep uh, your eye on even after you successfully and carefully tune it. And the other metrics is actually not related with Lambda itself, but the resources that we are using. So let's say, for example, we are using Kinesis, we are using SQS. So we need to keep an eye of how our Lambda function is performing in terms of these managed resources. So we should keep an eye uh, on on the Kinesis iter iterator age. We should like carefully look at the SQS queue size in order to not to overflow the messages and not to have data losses. Right. And so so then all this stuff is telling us uh, when, when we see the increased number of timeout errors, for example, um, then we could assume that it's potentially a third party service or, or one of the managed services uh, we're using is taking longer than it needs to. Um, and, and, and if we see things like you said, like the iterator age for Kinesis or the SQSQ size growing, um, you know, that those sort of things give us an indication that either our application isn't performing correctly or maybe some sort of downstream service isn't performing correctly. Um, but but distributed systems have failures all the time, right? Um, you know, random connectivity or network latency issues. Uh, you know, so, so should we be worried about occasional timeout errors here and there or is it more uh, in the aggregate that we want to look at? Yeah, so like... When a timeout error happens, it depends on your use case with Lambda. It might not be a, like the, the single timeout message might not be the, the, the end of the world for you. But you should like, it again depends on your use case. When when you have something that, that is critical, one timeout error can, can be something significant. But sometimes when you are using data processing and you can just retry it from Kinesis, let's say, and it, it doesn't mean that much and the signals can also come from the, the latency again latency when when you are uh, processing a message it may not be that problematic when the the average duration increases some some in some extent because there might be a steady state of your functions when there is like lots of load on your system the latency can increase to to some extent and it may not be something that problematic so what i'm trying to say is that there might be a range that your function is performing daily, weekly, maybe monthly. And uh, there might be some spikes because of the traffic, because of the third party API uh, slowdowns. And these may not be always the signal of failure, but something normal in the steady state. And you should know about it by constantly observing your system. And, and what about things, though, that you maybe could address? So I talked to Halel Solo the other day, and, and we were talking about flooding Kinesis streams mm -hmm. with junk data and then having trouble draining those. Uh, and, and that was more on the security side, but I, I can see things like bad messages in an SQS queue mm -hmm. uh, without the proper redrive policy causing lots of problems, too. So mm -hmm. how do we know those sort of things are happening? 
So like in this case, you should be able to have that observability tool that helps you to see what is the request and response that's coming through your Lambda function. So let's say that you have this, this function gets triggered by Kinesis and it gets some message and it doesn't throw a timeout, but it doesn't, it just throws some input error. In this case, you should set an alert for this condition and you should see that when, when I see this error type like excessively more, more than 10 times in, in a row, I should take an alert and I should uh, just go to SQS or go to Kinesis and take out the poisonous message. Okay, so I feel like the SQS situation where, where maybe you have a poisonous message in there uh, and it's just causing the function to fail over and over again, that, that those are fairly obvious when you start getting those exceptions. Um, but what about something like, uh, so for example, uh, so, so this, this happens to me on one of my projects. I, I get an error that says something like, and, and, and includes a stack trace, but it's something like a mapping error. Mm -hmm. uh, and it happens maybe once or twice a week. You know, it's, it's something like 0.001% of my invocations. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, very small. Um, it's this sort of edge case. And I, and I know that it's something that I, that I need to address, but mm -hmm. I see other errors like that too, where something will just kind of pop up and, and they feel like they're uh, anomalies, uh, maybe, or, or maybe just outliers. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how how worried should we be about things like that? So, again, it depends. So, the first thing that you should be aware of that outliers happen. So, this, this kind of situations happen. But as I said, this can be, the outlier even can be in the steady state. But that you should be able to understand the reasons of outliers. So, uh, I, I talk with like many customers from many Lambda users, and they were they they have this information that hey my 99 percentile of my function invocation duration is like let's say one second, and and it's normally is like 200 milliseconds. So, and when I ask them like what is the reason? Do you know that most of the time? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a, this third party API that we are using. I see it's slow sometimes, uh, but like. In some of the times, this is not this third-party API, but let's say the DynamoDB table that they, they, they use. So when when your function is having an an abnormal uh, invocation duration, you should know like not exactly at, at the same time, but maybe later as a retro, uh, you should know that what what caused them. So in Tundra, we provide kind of an heat map to our customers, and they see that they see the what are the outliers in the heat map and when they focus on that they see what is the normal usage of let's say dynamo and what's normal uh, what's the value of dynamo in the in this outlier region and it helps them to see if what is jumping during the outliers and after that they can also have a closer look to outliers so what are the inputs what are the outputs like what made my dynamo run slower than normal and it, it might be because of the input, it might be because of your bad coding practice, and it might be just because of Dynamo itself. So we made an experiment with Yankui actually, so maybe two months before, and it was DynamoDB keep alive connection, and he was seeing some spikes in DynamoDB duration, even if he's, he's using keep alive. Uh, and we, we see with Tundra that it's getting it's actually renewing the connection, even if it's keep alive. So we caught the how DynamoDB actually 
renews the connection and it causes an outlier. So maybe like if we trust the DynamoDB keep alive itself, it may not be sometimes like it may be causing problems, but detecting this and knowing about it is actually makes us prepared for such kind of a situation. Yeah, so so that's really interesting about the keep alive thing because AWS doesn't put it in the AWS SDK, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of people use it because it, it does speed up subsequent HTTP calls. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's interesting that it could potentially cause a problem if it needs to be reset. Um, yeah, and and I and I would assume that that some of these outliers will be things like cold starts too, mm-hmm. which I know most observability tools will say you know, this is a cold start or uh, exactly. this is a, a warm invocation. Um, yeah. All right. So let's move on uh, to talking about what exactly a failure is. Uh, you mentioned earlier about not getting an alert every time there's a timeout error or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know that failure conditions are sort of different based on different customer preferences. Uh, but maybe we could just talk about when does an error or group of errors constitute a failure? Uh, and maybe a better way to put it would be uh, in the serverless world, what are the signals of failure that we can actually address? Like, when should we take action? Yeah, this is something that we are thinking on it and we are uh, trying to find answers for a long while. You know, like in most of the tools that both with CloudWatch and with the other monitoring tools, the, the alerts are just for a single error. So you are just having a one lambda invocation and error happens and most of the time they are they are paging an alert but we thought that is this something that is that is actually wanted by people is that something that prevents people from alert fatigue you know we are coming from obscenity and that's why we are very very careful about not be not putting people into alert fatigue so we ask people what is the definition of failure for you like we asked like maybe tens of people of what do you think about what when do you think that this serverless architecture is failed and the response is that like not a single error like single errors most of the time is not an error so when i cause something an incident when it causes something cascading failures so i have a problem with lambda function and this lambda function should should have been triggered another lambda function through sns and this this triggers another lambda function through let's say sqs like i'm just throwing out a scenario here and so this first lambda function fails and the others even couldn't start so in this case we can understand that we are in a very bad trouble that we lose some transaction there and this is something that is a failure for for most of our uh, people that we talk with and the other stuff is that for at least especially for upper management uh, the Invocation duration, invocation count, the, any any kind of abnormality about these metrics are not very important, and they are seeing cost as a signal of failure. So when the when the let's say when they want to allocate ten dollars per day into a into their serverless architecture, and let's say one dollar per a function, in such cases. They want to get alerted when the cost exceeds this threshold. They don't. They are not interested in if the function is running more than expected because of a third-party API. They are not interested in if the problem happens because of an input error. They just wanted to see if the cost is if the cost is exceeding something something some threshold. Because all of their motivation was when starting with Lambda to save cost, and they don't want to ruin that with an with an problematic situation. 
Right. Yeah. And I, I think cost is always a good indication, even, uh, you know, just just to see if things were uh, taking longer to run than expected. Um, but but I always like this idea. I, I mean, you you mentioned tuning for the memory side of things, uh, but I think tuning for the timeout is also important uh, because I think it's easy to say, well, you know, let's just set the timeout to 30 seconds. And then that way, if something's running slow, then, you know, we'll just absorb it in the 30 seconds. And, and, and maybe that's right in certain situations. But uh, yeah, I really like this idea of failing very fast, especially to make sure that the user experience uh, is good. Uh, and, and speaking about user experience, you, you, you mentioned alert fatigue. And, and I think actually uh, that is really, really important because I, I know I've worked for several organizations uh, that have had all different types of alerts for their applications and infrastructure. Um, and there's always that one error that you just get every day, like 10 times a day, something random that's completely benign because you just know like, oh yeah, every once in a while, you know, this runs for a little bit longer or whatever. Uh, and, and maybe you go in and maybe you tweak your alerting system to say, you know, don't show me these alerts. But in my experience, uh, most people almost never do. Um, so then you you get to a point where you've got an email folder that's just flooded with alerts and, and you just start ignoring all alerts and that gets very, very dangerous. Exactly. Um, so, so how do you fight against that? Is is it something like anomaly detection? Uh, like, you know, what what can the providers do? And 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 this doesn't have to be specifically about Thunder, but what can you do, or or the tools that you use? What what can they do to prevent alert fatigue? Because I think uh, I think that it is uh, a serious problem in many organizations. Definitely, this is this is a problem that like most of our customers are facing, and. Even if you are using Tundra or not, you just know that what type of errors that you are facing, and and when you face one of them, how many more that is coming for you. So when when you see an alert in a time, so when you see a specific error type, it means that after a while, like for a while, you will have thousands of them, tens of them, like hundreds of them, like kind of and that we what we call alert storm. In this case, so you should either actually configure your alerting mechanism that. Don't raise me an alert until until the error type and until the errors with this type exceeds, let's say, a hundred, ten, whatever about your case, and or you can say that after I create after I got this the first alert about this error type, I don't want to get alerted for let's say two hours for let's say ten minutes. In this case. You don't uh, see like lots of messages in your mailbox if you are using Obscene or some some other uh, tools that you don't need to page an alert for every single error. And you can just got the first alert and understand their severity and you, you can just go and focus the problem and solve it. So in this case, uh, you can do it like yourself if you are shipping your uh, logs to let's say some, some other stuff from CloudWatch. And you can do it with Tundra by by like writing your own query. Let's say that I like to get alerted when uh, there are more than ten errors with this specific type. And after I get the first error, I want to throttle this alert. I want to I don't want to get one more than one alert for let's say two hours. So this is again your SLAs, your rules, and but you should be able to understand what's happening and for now what we do is Tundra is just as i said we are we are giving people a flexible querying system which let them to configure the alerts as flexibly as possible i can tell but we are also now working on some learning capabilities on how the problems occurs in their system 
and most probably we will be giving up this option to them by the end of the year about like you, we, we will be knowing you we will be actually understanding when to when to raise an alert for you and this is this is this will be more flexible and even they won't need to do this but you know when they want to keep the control we will continue to let them use the queries yeah and, and i think it, it's hard to build tools that are self-learning like that because our architectures you know do change quite a bit so i imagine keeping up with the changes wouldn't be easy but um, all right. So, 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 what about failures outside? I don't want to say outside of our control, although they probably are outside of our control. Uh, but things like SQS errors and DynamoDB errors, like the the inability to connect for some reason, or uh, I, I get SQS errors all the time that just say uh, internal error or something like that um, when when you try to put a message to SQS, uh, and, and it happens, you know, every once in a while. And and I know that 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 there are retries in there and. Uh, you know, they happen automatically for you. Uh, but but when you get a, a message like that, I, I don't know if I want to be alerted um, on those because they just seem to be like normal distributed system errors uh, that I really can't do anything about, um, you know, other than, you know, have a good retry mechanism in there. So So what are your thoughts on those types of errors? Like, should we be alerting on those or or should we not? So uh, this is something that very controversial with our customers as well. So some of our customers wants to know in any case, like uh, they want to understand what if even if there is nothing they, that they can do, they want to report this situation to their uh, directors, to their team leads. And some of our people say that, hey, there is nothing to do with this. Let's grab a beer. This is something SQL servers and the try will fix it anyway but in such situations what you need to do this like when you first receive this error and even if you get alerted or not you should just check from a distributed uh, tracing application like us and see if if there's a problem there's something abnormal from your site in order to verify that it is something caused by service providers is something caused by dynamo is something caused by sqs in this case you just check the message that you sent you just see the if the, if there's the problem with the operation name if there's a problem with the the timing of this and you should see what happened in your code maybe line by line maybe in in a method level and how did you prepare this message for them and when you are sure that there is nothing wrong with the message that you sent, you can then blame the others that, hey, this is not related with us. And you can just uh, sit and wait it's, it, it, it to be fixed, actually. All right. So I think this is a good segue uh, maybe to uh, the next topic. So so I mentioned actionable alerts. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we know bad things happen, right? We know that something can't communicate and APIs slow down and managed services uh, might become unavailable for a period of time. Uh, or there's some bad code in your app somewhere. Um, you know, so we can detect some of that stuff, or or you can detect some of that stuff with observability tools. Um, you know, you can alert users. Uh, but but I kind of want to talk about how you respond to those things. Um, because first of all, there's this responsibility shift, maybe right where we used to have operations teams and they would address the scalability and the hardware issues. Uh, and you know, as we as we move to sort of DevOps. That's sort of translated into the developer and ops working together to try to figure out, uh, you know, if it's a code problem or configuration or, or things like that. Um, so we're obviously not using as many operations people in serverless, especially mm -hmm. for smaller customers. Uh, and I don't think you're going to have operation teams 
at all, maybe, you know, startups and, and things like that that are using serverless uh, are going to be almost entirely serverless or mostly serverless. So, so now you get a developer who gets this alert. So, so when a developer now gets an alert that is actionable, you know, that they can, they can actually do something about, what's the, what's the first step? What does the, the response process look like? Yeah, as you say, like in, in previous systems with like non-serverless system, so like most of the time it was a scalability issue. There were ops people who is actually on top of that, and they are, they were scaling the systems and they were solving the issues even without asking to developers. And they had these issues now with serverless. Like as you say, there are there are teams that that doesn't even have any kind of an operations. Uh, people inside and like even like front-end engineers are building up very nice products with uh, serverless in these days and in this case but there are still some problems which actually impacts our systems so which actually impacts our end user experience so the the problems the most of the time is actually the errors and the latencies so we don't have the scalability issues now but uh, we have this latencies and the errors so the, the operation people actually turn like tune themselves as a as a people who teach their colleagues about like, how to respond to such kind of an errors too. So in this case, like when you take an alert, and we should I also talked told about this what makes an alert actionable. So the the actionable alert about an error is actually an alert which shows the stack trace of the this alert and this shows the how actually it is cascading between functions so we provide such kind of an uh, alert for our customers when an error happens they can show what's the stack trace they can see they can see what happens what was the request and response to this function and in this case they can actually understand if the problem is occurring because of them or because of the message that they just they just receive and it's, it's, is it because of a bad piece of code? Is it because of a misconfiguration? And they can understand from that perspective. And there are those alerts because of latency. So like what makes an alert, what makes latency alert actionable? In this case, whenever you receive an alert, let's say that, let's say that you set up an alert, which, say, which says that I want to get alerted when the dysfunction or all transaction as a chain uh, invocations of several functions exceeds let's say one second and alert me alert me when when this condition happens more than five times in the last 10 minutes so let's say you have such kind of an alert when you receive this alert the first thing that you you, you would actually want to see is that what caused the latency jump so in the alert body itself, there should be some somewhere saying that, hey, your function is performing like worse than before, worse than normal. And the, the cause is that you are reaching out this API on, let's say, like some URL, and uh, this URL started to respond slower. Like uh, normally it was like 50 milliseconds. Now it is like 500 milliseconds. In this case, you can say that, hey, this URL is performing slowly is there something that we i can do and this is something how you take you can take actions actually yeah so so what i'm thinking is that when you get alerts uh and, and that's one of the big things that observability tools uh certainly help with is this idea of identifying 
know, what type of error it is. Uh, because certainly if, it, if it's things like IAM permission errors, um, which can happen, right? Somebody mm -hmm. on your team changes an IAM permission and then all of a sudden one of your functions that doesn't often use, uh, you know, the delete item call in DynamoDB uh, now needs to delete an item and, 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 you, and you start getting errors around that. So, so obviously things like the timeout errors and the memory errors, um, those are all things that certainly would kind of get you to start looking at stuff. But, mm -hmm. but maybe that's where this, you know, this ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure saying comes in, right? So, so basically, if you prepare for this sort of stuff, if, if you're in better shape for these types of failures, because you can sort of anticipate them or, or build in the resiliency to protect against these things, mm -hmm. um, you know, then, then you're way ahead of the game. And, and I had a, a whole episode where we talked to Gunnar Grosh uh, about chaos engineering, and, and he actually mentioned Thundra as being one of the tools that can sort of automatically inject latency and errors into your application uh, to help plan for this kind of stuff. Um, so I don't want to talk too much about chaos engineering, yeah. um, but, but I think it's a really, really interesting topic. Um, you know, so so from the standpoint of mean time to repair and, and the ability for you to recover quickly if there's an outage, um, you know, it might be that that some of these things could almost be automated for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a sense, I mean, especially if you if you did things like graceful degradation, right? Um, so if a third party API isn't responding, um, you know, there's there's better ways to deal with that. So so what are some of the other ways that chaos engineering uh, could help us improve our MTTR? Yeah. So. First of all, like uh, I listened to, to the episode with Gunnar, and it was very very nice. And and it talked uh, like you talked about the basics of chaos engineering and how it is important for serverless a lot. But I can tell about like how it is actually useful for responding to incidents. So the best way to get prepared for an incident is actually to experience it before. But no one wants to experience some something bad like over and over again, right? So and. The, the the nice thing that we can do with cache engineering is that you can just get yourself prepared by actually stimulating this, these kind of problems. So you can ask yourself, what if this third-party API that I'm using starts to respond slower? What if the DynamoDB that I'm just leaning on like completely starts to not to not to respond? So you can you can run such kind of an chaos engineering experiments, and in this case, you should you should be knowing that what what will happen, and you should be knowing that not 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 just because of not from the perspective of what to do, but how to inform the customers, how to inform the upper management, how to have the let's say the uh, retro. You can understand how you can respond this kind of situations. Uh, from many different perspectives. So let's say you can set up a HTTP latency uh, chaos experiments, and you can see how what 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 are you going to do when when this kind of situation happens. So you can you can set up a graceful degradation policy there, and in this case you can still serve your customers even if this third-party API is slow. Uh, let's say that what you can just uh, stimulate an idea with Tundra. You can just inject an Error to DynamoDB, like illegal access exception. That's, for example, IAM permission exception, and you can't reach out to Dynamo. And maybe Dynamo, some Dynamo can experience some throttles, and maybe DynamoDB. I don't know. Uh, I hope it it never happens. But DynamoDB becomes unreachable for 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 most of the people in the in the, in the region. So you should have you should have see what will happen in your system, and you should uh, actually implement some 
some exit points for that. So this is all the chaos engineering is about actually getting prepared for the incidents. So you should maybe for for example for DynamoDB issue, you can put a circuit breaker, you can put a like another version of your Lambda function uh, with a circuit breaker to Dynamo, and you can just upload this. You can just deploy this this Lambda function, and in this in this case, you can return uh, some default responses to your customers. But in, in any case, you won't be able to you 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 won't you won't collapse. You, you will be able to still answer your uh, customers with with some dummy answers, but customers won't be able to see an error message and won't be able to see the white screen. In this case, you will be able to understand what's what's happening. And the last thing that I like to talk about cash engineering is that you you get yourself prepared about like how actually you will respond to the incidents as a team. So when you receive an alert from Tundra or whatever, this will be most of the time the first time you receive this. And with cash engineering, it won't be the first time, and you will be get prepared. What 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 you will be have a runbook when when you have this error. So that's actually a question that I have because again, we might be putting circuit breakers in and gracefully degrading the experience for the user, uh, you know, because the latency is too high for something. Um, but but when do we want to know about that? So so this is something I spoke with with Gunner about, where we said, you know, even if we can't process a credit card transaction through Stripe right now, you know, that's fine. We, we just buffer those requests in SQS uh, and then process them later when the service comes back up. Um, you know, so if we do that, if we if we build in these circuit breakers and we build in these things uh, where you know we have a, a short timeout, uh, you know, on purpose. Um, you know, maybe we say if we can't reach Stripe within five seconds, then we're just going to fail it, uh, and we'll buffer the event, and and we'll just replay it later. Um, you know, should should we still get alerts on these? And 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 maybe these are are the the non actionable, uh, you know, the non actionable ones uh, like we talked about. Um, you know, where it's okay. You know, Stripe is down again, although I, I think that that probably doesn't happen very often. Um, but let's say it's some small third party API. And we say, oh yeah, that's down again. It's fine. Uh, you know, it'll it'll come back up. Uh, you know, we know everything is being buffered. Um, you know, but but can we get alerts on those sort of things to let us know an incident is happening? Um, you know, just just so you're aware of it, but but you don't need to take any action. Yeah, this is actually a very educative for the team. So you should be knowing that the the resources that you are using is not performing well from time to time, and you should be knowing this statistic statistically that. What happens with this third-party API? It doesn't like Stripe doesn't uh, fail that much, uh, or of course like, but like this third-party API, which is something not very manageable. So such kind of statistics give you an idea that if you should still continue to use this, if you should still to continue to make requests to this third-party APIs, or you should you can you start searching some alternatives if you can. So one of our customers. Did this with with some APIs that they are using. They actually because of us they switched to us, they switched to other product because they see that uh, the latency with this third party API started to increase uh, and continuously. And this they see that it's not getting any better. And they switch to some some data alternative, some competitors of this third party. Awesome. Okay. Well, listen, Emra, I I really appreciate you being here. Uh, why don't you tell everybody how they can find out more about you and more about Thundra? Yeah. So uh, thanks a lot for having me for the first, like, first of all. And, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm with my name and surname, Emra Samdan. Uh, and I, I'm, my DMs are open and I'm 
I'm talking with like many people during the day about serverless and observability, and uh, I'm I actually lo love to speak with the uh, serverless thought leaders like you and like many others. And Tundra is reachable by Tundra.io, and we are releasing continuously some blogs about like how some how-to articles, some some our feature updates on blog.tundra.io. And we also have an open demo environment in which you can see what Tundra does, uh, like using a sample data that we produce continuously. It's reachable by demo.tundra.io. If you need something like distributed tracing combined with local tracing, uh, Tundra is the for now is the only solution that you can you can find, and we can we can just talk about it on Twitter, on our Slack, if you join, whenever you want. Awesome. All right. We'll get all that information into the show notes. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jen. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ember Shamdan for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 12. For more serverless chats, be sure to subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>